So Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So uh, what we'll do is we'll kind of jump right into verses 1 through 8 in just a moment. Um, but remember, we've been kind of building a case here, chapters 1, two, one and 2, uh, chapter 1, dealing with kind of the idea of uh, him communicating with the church. Uh, he's thanking them for so many things. He's praying for them. He's proud of them for their faith and their testimony. Then we get into chapter 1 later on. We find out that he's making a case that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are guilty before God and, and judgment is upon them and the wrath of God is upon, upon them. Chapter 2, we get into uh, dealing with the Jews being guilty before God. And again, this would encourage us or tell us that at least either in the church or in the community there, there is a large population of both Jews and Gentiles. And so it's a good reminder here that this is the culture we're speaking to. There's uh, probably a various uh, large mix of various cultures and people groups in Rome. I'm sure as it being a very large place of commerce, uh, we see Paul addressing both of these audiences. We covered all the way through chapter 2, and we're going to start in chapter 3. And chapter 3, uh, it to me, is one of the most probably popular, but one of the most encouraging chapters in the book of Romans. And uh, it's amazing because we kind of get a little bit of a relief. Uh, we've been talking a lot over the last couple weeks about wrath and judgment and condemnation and all these really big words that we don't really care to hear. But in chapter 3, we're going to get a little bit of a relief from that, a little bit of encouragement from what God is going to do about those things. And so uh, chapter 3, and uh, if I have a volunteer that would like to read, uh, I'd like to read verses 1 through 4 and then five through eight. So two volunteers, one through four. So Lance, one through four, great. And then five through eight. One more volunteer there, five through eight. Mary, thank you. So all right, Lance is going to kick us off. Go ahead, bud. Okay, Mary. Okay, so Paul's picking up, and some people, and it says in your notes there, Paul opens up chapter 3 with, again, a connection to chapter 2, since there were no chapter breaks original, uh, originally to the writing. So there was normally not a chapter break here. And so we see, what do we see in verses 1 through 8 that carry on from chapter 2? He's still dealing with who? He's still dealing with the Jews. He's still dealing with this idea of trying to show them who they really are. Some commentaries actually include verses 1 through 8 in with chapter 2, in dealing with the Jews being guilty before God. Again, we see Paul using a lot of rhetorical questions, which may seem confusing as we read them. When you read these verses together, uh, you might even kind of stop a few times and just think, what did I just read? Uh, what is he saying here? I don't understand. Because it's kind of this back and forth that really is only happening between Paul. Right? Paul's not really talking to someone in this moment. It's just Paul asking these rhetorical questions to himself or to the audience. And so when Paul does this, it kind of confuses us a little bit. Like, wait, what is he saying here? And so when we read through here, I want to kind of break this down a little bit and give us a little clarity on this. Paul is, as some have taught, refuting some questions that were raised by the Jews that desired to question him. 
So what's going on here is Paul has spent a lot of chapter 2 explaining to the Jews that, that, listen, you can say you have the law, but what, is there a benefit to just hearing the law? Was Paul's point that it's beneficial to just hear the law? What was Paul's point there? It's not, you don't just hear the law, but you have to what? Do the law, and you have to do it perfectly, right? So Paul is saying these things, and it's almost as though either A, he actually has heard these questions from some in the Jewish community, or B, he may just be assuming these are questions that someone's going to pose to him or pose to his, what he's gone through and said in chapter 2. So whatever way it is, he's kind of refuting these questions, whether it be questions that were actually posed to him or questions he's assuming somebody would ask of him. First, there is, the first question is, is there an advantage to the Jews? Is there an advantage to the Jews? So again, he just spent all this time talking about right before this, the idea of circumcision. And what does he say in chapter two about somebody who is a Jew who is circumcised, but is not living under God's law, not living for God's glory? What does he say happens to their circumcision? It becomes what? Uncircumcision. And his point is, at the end of the chapter, who is a true Jew? Who is a true Jew, according to Paul, at the end of chapter two? One who is a Jew, what? Inwardly. What does that mean to be a Jew inwardly? What does that mean to be a Jew inwardly? Okay. It's basically you're circumcised in the heart. What does that mean? In my heart, I've given myself to God. The circumcision is just a symbol, right? The circumcision doesn't bring intrinsic holiness right? It's, it, that's not the point of that. It's a sign. It's a symbol of a covenant. And so what Paul's point is, you can have all the outward symbols you want, but if your heart isn't changed, then what good are those outward symbols? They don't profit you anything, he says. Jesus said the same thing, right? What did he say of the, of the Pharisees who looked really good and looked really the parts? What did he call them? Okay, whitewashed tombs. Golden, what, sepulchers, right? Man, you look really good on the outside, but what's on the inside? He says, dead bones. There's no real change there. And so Paul is kind of reaffirming the same point, right? You can, you can dress it up however you want. Uh, you can bring Lazarus out. You can put him in a suit and tie. You can make him look really nice. But at the point of it is he is dead, right? You can, you can pretty him up all you want. You can put all the cologne on him you want, but he's still dead. There's no change. There's no life in him. And so Paul's point here is these Jews thought, well, because we're Jews and we're of Abraham and we have the law, we're, we're alive. And look, God loves us and he's going to be pleased with us. Paul's point is, no, no, no. If you're not a Jew inwardly, all the circumcision in the world, all the outward symbols, all the signs and all these things doesn't do any good to anyone. So here in chapter three, he's kind of following up with that because he says the first thing is then someone may ask the question, well, then what good is it to be a Jew? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? If you just got done telling me that it really doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not, whether whatever, because whether you're under the law or you're without the law, what's the truth of those, both those groups of people? Those that are under the law and that don't have the law, what's true of both those groups in God's eyes as far as sin is concerned? They're, they're both sinful, right? They're both guilty. It doesn't matter. So someone may say, well, then, okay, what's the difference? What's the point? What's the advantage of being a Jew. Now, our, might, our first answer might be, there is no advantage. We might just throw it out there. Well, there's no advantage because it's all the same. What's Paul's answer to that? What is, is there any advantage for the Jews? Is there any advantage at all that the Jews have over the Gentiles? Okay, what does he say here? That they have what? The oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Another translation, someone tell me what that maybe says. The prophets, okay. 
The law, as Jill said, would be part of that. How about just summarizing it? The word of God, right? Yeah, the words of God were given to the Jews. Now, what were the Jews supposed to do with those words they received from God? Yeah, there was, when the prophets told them this, they were supposed to go, okay, we're going to go tell everybody else this. And instead, what did they do? They either murdered the prophets because they didn't like what God's word said, or they rejected it because they didn't want to live under God's authority, or there were some that would actually try to do this, that would try to live under God's authority, would try to live in a way that'd be pleasing to God. And so Paul's point is, yeah, there is an advantage for those that were Jews. They have the word of God given to them. There is an advantage there. But with that advantage, what do you think comes with that advantage? I think there's a responsibility there. I think just as much as I have an advantage that I hear the word of God, I also now have a little bit of responsibility to go and tell someone else. What is true of the Christian today? Is there any advantage for the Christian over the non-believer? What's the advantage we have? We've been given the word of God. Not just the word of God, we have the author of the word of God indwelling us. We have a relationship with God himself. But with that advantage comes a responsibility. What's our responsibility? To take the word of God and go communicate it to those that don't have the word of God. So that, what's the outcome that we desire? Okay, make more believers. What else? Is that kind of what you guys were saying? Make more believers, people come to know Christ. I always love it when we all talk at once. It's always great, encouraging. Okay. Then I'm trying to like, what, what, that just, I heard two words together, but I didn't know it was a sentence, okay? Right, we, we understand there's more believers. So when people are getting saved, what's the greater outcome of that? What's the whole point of getting saved? I'm sorry? Okay, to be with God in eternity. So what's the point of that? Yes, everything has to come down to, it's all about his glory. Understand this, as much as salvation is to a degree about us, because we're the ones being saved, it is to a greater degree about his glory. And what does he tell us in the word of God? That we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are rescued because of his good pleasure, right? Because it pleases him, it glorifies him, and it puts his grace on display for all ages to see. So ultimately, when we're making disciples by leading people to Christ and Christ is saving them, he is glorified. And so in the same way that Paul's saying, hey, there's an advantage to being a Jew. You had the word of God. You could have led others to God and in turn glorify God. But instead, you didn't do that. And that's what he talks about in chapter 2. Even if from verses really 17 through 20, he talks about that. Right? You guys are supposed to be the ones teaching the blind. You're supposed to be the ones leading the blind, rather. Teaching these people, leading them, and encouraging them in the things of God. But you didn't do that. So when they ask the question, well, then what does it matter? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Well, yeah, you have the word of God given to you. That's a great advantage over those that don't. So, um, we got in the notes here. So the answer is that while, yes, they were still guilty before God in sin, they do have an advantage because they were given the word of God. They had access to God's word and law as God's chosen people. And God specifically said, this nation Israel I will use as a lighthouse, as a mission to the, to the world around me. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, what's the point of David and Goliath? So many people have mistaken that story to mean that I can overcome any giant that I face in my life by faith. That if the, no matter the giant, if I have faith, I will overcome that giant and have victory. That's a cute way of looking at it. And it's really encouraging and inspirational. But that's not really the point of David and Goliath. When you read the story of David and Goliath, you find out that David says over and over again, different ways, is there not a cause? This person's blaspheming God. And when he is defeated, they will all know there is one God. 
So the story of David and Goliath is not an overcomer story. It's a mission story. It's a story that there is only one God, and you will not mock him. God will have his vengeance, his wrath. And so when, when Goliath fell, it was demonstrating to all of those people that were there, there is one God. There's not many. There's one. And it's a, it's a story about God's glory and God's oneness. And so again, this is what we see in the Jewish nation. This is what we see Jesus communicating to the church. We must go out and make disciples. Secondly, another question that is posed here is, will Jewish unbelief cancel out God's faithfulness? The answer is absolutely not. God will always be true and faithful. The idea here is if God promised the Messiah in the Old Testament, but the Jews did not believe, wouldn't God have to keep his promises whether the Jew was a sinner or not? So again, the idea here is if God said he's going to do this, but we don't believe he's going to do it, well, does that cancel out his faithfulness? It's almost kind of like a, a kind of a way of twisting the scripture. It's like, well, he said he would do this. So whether I'm a sinner or not, whether I believe or not, He's, is he going to do it? He's got to do it, right? And they're trying to basically get away from saying, I'm a sinner under God's wrath. He said he would send a Messiah who would rescue us. So whatever I do doesn't matter. God will still rescue me. God will still bring a Messiah who will rescue me. And so it's one of those things we see sometimes in, when people try to quote Scripture for their own purposes. We take parts of the verse. We take parts of the verse. So we take the parts we like. Okay? Uh, it's just funny how we do this all the time. We, we try to, we do it too. I do it too. We try to find a verse that affirms what I want it to say. When we come across another verse that I don't like, I throw that one away. So some Christians might take one or two things from the law, uh, whether it be ceremonial or whatever, and they'll take one thing from the law and they'll say, well, you can't do that because the Bible says this. And they'll quote a verse from the law. But in the same passages or the same ideas of law, ceremonial or otherwise, they will ignore those things because they don't see it as important. So the law may say you can't do this. And so someone might say, well, I'm going to quote that verse to you because I don't want you to do that. I don't think it's right. But then the very same law that we don't or that we are not under in Christ says not to wear mixed fibers. Not supposed to wear mixed fibers. So like a cotton blend. That's a mixed fiber. If you're quoting the verse over here that says you can't do that because the Bible says this, then you better be consistent and not wear cotton blend t-shirts. See what I'm saying? You also can't have a BLT, by the way. But sometimes we don't do that, though. We pick the one verse that we like. Now, what is the part of the law of God that even though we're in grace, we're under grace, right? We're saved by grace. Amen? Wow, okay. I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm okay about that. Because if we're not, we're all in trouble, okay? We're all saved by grace. So I understand what I'm, so understand what I say, when I say this, what I mean. The moral law of God is meant to kind of, I still believe is in place, meaning God still wants us to not murder. God still wants us to not commit adultery, okay? Me breaking those commandments will not take me from righteousness to unrighteousness because in my natural state, I'm already unrighteous. In Christ, if I break one of the commandments, am I still righteous in Christ? If I break a commandment in Christ? Yes, right? If I'm saved, follower, believer of Jesus Christ, have confessed my sins and repented of my sins and I trusted in Christ, and I, in a moment of fit of rage, I kill someone, I don't lose my salvation, right? I'm still saved. So then what do I mean by that? I believe that we live under the moral law of God as a schoolmaster, as, one that, as something that teaches us how to live a life that pleases God. But be very, very careful because I've had many conversations with believers, with Christians, who will take other parts of the law of God, ceremonial or even dietary, and then impose them on other people saying, you can't do this because, and they'll go to this verse in the Bible. 
And it's a very kind of slippery slope to go down. I had somebody tell me, and I've shared this before, that we did a community service project um, a couple of, I don't know how many years ago now. We went to North Branch. Some of you guys might remember this. And we painted some things at the North Branch Park. We painted these like white, kind of like border things that kind of go around the park. And as we were doing it, we set up to do this. We had service at the park. We did it right after service. We had lunch. Then we did a, this work project. I had somebody tell me, a Christian man tell me that was saved for many, many years, said, you can't do that. You can't do that project. Why can't I do this project? I mean, why would we not serve the community? Which, by the way, the people of North Branch, the, the guy I was talking to was over that, was over, just elated that somebody would want to come paint these things. He, apparently nobody would volunteer to do this. He just, he didn't want to do it, so he was trying to find somebody. And I asked him, I said, what can we do to help? And he said, well, it's not a fun job, but we need these things painted. I said, we'll be there. No problems, no questions asked. So I asked this guy, I said, well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this on a Sunday? He said, well, it's the Sabbath day, and you're supposed to keep it holy, and it's the day of rest. So there's so many things wrong with that statement. It would take me a while to unpack it, but I'll give you the abbreviated version. Is Sunday the Sabbath day? When is the Sabbath day? Right. Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown is the Sabbath day. What is Sunday called in the Bible? Yeah, the, day of the, the first day of the week or the day of the Lord or whatever you want to call it. So when he said this to me, he's taking a law. Is it in the Bible that on the Sabbath day you're supposed to keep it holy and all this? He's taking this law principle or this verse, and he's saying he's applying it, misapplying it to the wrong day of the week and saying you can't do this project. While this person would still have no problem with getting up, getting dressed, driving to church, sitting through church and driving home. Do you know that Jews in the early first century, they would actually, and this is again, this is an exaggeration of the law, uh, they put these boundaries on people. Do you know that if you went too far from your house on the Sabbath day, you could be stoned? If you traveled too far, if you walked too far, because you're doing too much work. And again, this is where I want to be careful here. We've got to be so cautious that we take Scripture in context and we apply principles and patterns. So there's principles in God's Word. Now, let's take the principle of the Sabbath. And I think the ladies did a Bible study that dealt with this not that long ago, correct? Now, uh, what's the principle of the Sabbath? A day of rest to honor God, to rest, and take a time for ourselves, okay? Just to have a day of rest. Is there anything wrong with that as a principle? No. Should we set aside time during the week to honor God, to keep holy remembrance of the things that God has done for us? We gather, as the Bible says in the New Testament, come together on the first day of the week, right? So there's nothing wrong with that principle, but it's not a pattern verse for the New Testament believer. You are not bound to, to Friday night till Saturday night, sit in your house and do nothing because I got to rest. It's the day, it's the Sabbath day. You're not bound by that. That's not a law over you because of grace. So again, principle, yeah, we can take the principle there and we can apply that to our lives and have a day of rest. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't have a day of rest, you will notice the difference. If you don't take time to rest, as God encourages, you will see yourself stressed, wearied, frustrated. You'll snap at people. It's just great. You'll, and I, it's amazing. I don't know how this is. Work for six days and rest for one, and you'll accomplish more than working for seven days. It's just truth. It's just how, over time, it will show it to be true. So we have to be careful that we don't live these things out that are meant to be principle passages for the new believer or the New Testament believer and call them pattern verses. Now, we do have some pattern verses, right? Let's go to the New Testament. Think about this for a second. Uh, a pattern verse would be Lord's Supper, Right? We, we do the Lord's Supper the way we do it. Why? Because this is a pattern verse. Paul received it from Jesus. Paul gives it to the local church, and he encourages us to do it this way. Okay, so we do it that way. Baptism. 
We believe baptism is a pattern verse or passage. We baptize as we believe the New Testament teaches us to get baptized. Okay? That's why we baptize by immersion. We believe that's the example set forth, therefore a pattern. Salvation is a pattern verse. Right? There's not many, many ways to get saved. There's the way to get saved, and that's the pattern we see throughout Scripture. So we have to be careful that there are pattern passages and principle passages. Again, it's all the Word of God. I'm not, I'm not negating the Word of God or minimizing it, but if we don't understand that difference, we end up getting confused, and we start living like a Pharisee and put laws on people that were never meant to be laws that they carry. Does that make sense? So just so you know, just kind of think that out, walk that out. Because as Paul's saying here, they're trying to say, well, hey, let me just twist this scripture on a little bit here. By the way, what did Jesus and Satan, their encounter, what did Satan do with Jesus? What was his way of trying to tempt Jesus? What did he keep quoting to Jesus? Part of the word, half truth, sort of parts of scripture. And then Jesus would come back with what? The true scripture. By the way, if you're ever going to get into like a Bible challenge thing, Son of God, not one you want to go against, I would imagine. I think he would win every time. Um, and so if Jesus says this is what it means, you just say, yay, Lord, that's what it means, okay? Uh, third, the third question that Paul is kind of refuting here. Uh, if our sin commends his righteousness, how can he judge us? So this is an interesting one. It took me a few times of reading this through to really get kind of what I thought Paul was saying here and did some studying and some other things and I think I've kind of developed a little bit of an idea of what Paul is saying. The point is here, the answer is that we do not do evil, that good may come of it. I wanted to read this in another translation to maybe help us have a little bit of a, more of an understanding on some of the wording here. Mary, I think, read this, um, and it, her translation was a little bit different. And so again, some of the wording there maybe helped you a little bit from maybe how the wording in the King James would say it. So this is how another translation says this, Romans 3, 5. But some might say... So here's the question. He's saying, some of them might say to me, our sinfulness serves as a good purpose, or serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? And then I love what Paul says here. This is merely a human point of view. So what's the debate here? What's the point that they're trying to make here? If I do wrong, if I sin, what is that going to highlight about God? The difference, his righteousness, my sinfulness. So if my wrongdoing points out something good in God, that's a good thing. So if that's a good thing, then why am I being judged for my sin when I'm pointing out something good about God? Isn't that silly? But I'm telling you, when we're in sin, when we're in sin, we will justify that sin. And this sounds silly to some of us, but I'm telling you, there's a time in my life before Christ and maybe even a little after Christ where I would have been like, come on, Lord. I mean, aren't my wrongdoings, aren't they kind of highlighting your goodness? What does Romans 6 say? We're going to jump ahead a little bit. So Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. This is how we know this might be a little bit of an issue in the Roman church, or at least a cultural issue. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There's one of those rhetorical questions. It's a pretty simple answer. If I'm dead to sin, should I live in it? No. It's common sense. So here Paul is kind of reaffirming in chapter 6 verse 1 what he's saying here is being asked of him. If my wrongdoing highlights the good of God, then why then is God punishing me? Paul is pointing out that human, hum, humanly speaking, you can pose this question, but again, God is always true. 
God is always right. God is always fair. Uh, we can say, well, yeah, but I'm doing something that's going to highlight a good thing about God's character. It's still sin. It's still wrong. It doesn't make the wrong rights. And I've always loved that Paul ends that verse with, I'm speaking from a human point of view, or this is humanly speaking. Why? Because if we're thinking like Christ, or we're thinking with heavenly thoughts, there's no way that thought even enters our mind. But when we're thinking earthly, and what does James say? How does James describe earthly wisdom? What are some of the things, if you remember in James, how does he describe earthly wisdom? Calls it devilish, right? Sensual, okay? Lowly. It's this low way of thinking. Why would I pose that question? What am I trying to do? Justify my sin. I want to think it's okay. And so Paul instantly refutes that and does away with that. So uh, any questions, comments, or thoughts on verses 1 through 8 before we move into the next? Now we're going to move into a whole other section. Uh, he's kind of finished with the Jews. And by the way, the Jews get, they get hit pretty hard <laughs> in, this, in this chapter and a half. Um, and so if you're a Jewish person and you're reading this and you come to the end of verse 8, I don't know how you can look at this and go, oh, I'm still good. I think I'm fine. I think they're pretty aware of their needs. So any comments, questions? Verses 1 through 8? All right, let's look at verses 9 through 20. So 9 through 20. In your notes there, uh, now he's transitioning to the entire world or the whole world is guilty before God. And so 9 through 20, I know it's a lot of verses. I'm going to break it up just a little bit and we'll read it together. So 9 through maybe 14. 9 through 14, and then 15 through 20. So 9 through 14, maybe a volunteer who hasn't read yet that would like to read. Dennis, all right. So 9 through 14 for Dennis, and then 15 through 20. Anyone else that would like to read? Anyone else? Julie, awesome, thank you. Go ahead, Dennis. Sepulcher, yep, yep. With the tongue, they have used deceit. The poison and ash is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Hmm. Julie? Okay, well, thank you guys for reading that. So here we read. He, I love how he starts. And if you look at there, he actually says uh, in verse 9, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentile. So what are we saying? Chapter 1, chapter 2, what is his reasoning to prove this? And I love Paul's confidence here. His point is, if you've been listening to what I've said, it's proven. It's fact. It's, you can't get away from it. You can't negate it. You can't reject it. Uh, so many people have considered what Paul does here one of the wisest ways he could build a case for the need for Christ. And so in your notes there, first thing I want to make a point of mentioning is note 
the use of the words all and none. The, the use of the words all and none, which makes clear the universality of human guilt. All have fallen short. All have sinned. None are righteous. None do good. All these things. It's all and none. It's, it's universal. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm 14, 1 through 3 in Romans 3, 10. And uh, I put it in your notes here. The psalm, this psalm, Rome, or Psalms 14, 1 through 3, this psalm begins with the comment, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in, your heart, in their heart, there is no God. Uh, you ever notice when you're reading in a translation, um, some modern translations don't do this, but the King James will usually do this. You ever notice when you're reading in a translation, words are highlighted, or I mean not highlighted, but um, italicized? You ever see a word italicized in Scripture? Uh, someone tell me, why is that italicized in the King James, for example? Why would a word be italicized? It's not in this passage. I'm just saying as an example. Why would a word be italicized in the Bible or in a translation? Yeah, that's great. I love that observation. There's something special about this. Okay, so in a translation, if a word is italicized, like in the King James Bible, they're telling you that word or those couple of words are not in the original content. They're not original to the manuscript. So why then would we need to put in a word that isn't in the original content or the original manuscript when translating it from another language into English? Okay, they don't have the word, right? In some languages, one word in that language might need three words in English. Okay, Mary? Yes, most would say it's so that when you're reading it, it flows through and understands. So this, this, the translators would be reading through, and as they're translating it, they would have to sometimes add in things like and, is, the. Well, in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, uh, the literal translation removes the phrase, there is. So, for example, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The literal translation removes there is, which was added for reading. It actually reads, the fool hath said in his heart, no God. No God. Now, we might, now, does that affect the interpretation of the verse? Does it change the meaning of the verse? No. It's giving us clarity, but it maintains the integrity of the passage. But I love what, when I was studying this out here, one author said, this parallels this idea. This parallels the description given by Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 32, for it all started with man saying no to God. I thought that was really good. No to God. The fool has said in his heart, no God. I'm not going to adhere. I'm not going to be under your authority. And so when you see here, verse 10 of Romans 3, for as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We are not righteous because we have said in our hearts, no, God. No, I'm not going to fall under your authority. I'm not going to adhere to what you have for me. And so Paul's kind of tying this all together. Uh, Paul then explains how the whole of man, apart from Christ, is controlled by sin. When we read these verses, verses 9 through 20, there's a section in here that really makes me feel good about myself, naturally speaking. I feel really good about myself, naturally speaking. Not really that sarcasm because it's pretty crazy how Paul describes the natural man. Uh, but when you look at this here, he's describing the whole of man apart from Christ being controlled by sin. How is the mind of man controlled by sin? Paul says, none that understands. There's none that understand. What, are we, what do we not understand? What is it that we don't understand as a natural man apart from Christ? There's a few opinions on this. Okay. Okay, we don't understand God or his character. Okay, we don't understand the, the gravity of sin, the weight of sin. 
Okay? Which if I don't understand the weight of sin, what also do I not understand? Sin itself. That's a great point. Absolutely. Or the penalty of sin. If you tell me this is the penalty of sin, but I think sin isn't that bad, you seem really ridiculous and just silly. No, that's, that's foolishness. You would never punish someone for that. This is why people say all the time, I can't imagine that God would send someone to hell for all of eternity because of sin. When somebody says that, they don't understand sin. They don't understand the magnitude of sin. And it's because their mind is darkened, right? Their mind is unable to understand naturally. Paul even says that in Corinth, right, the carnal man cannot understand the things of God. And we can't understand them apart from the influence and the working and the convicting of the Holy Spirit, which we read about in John. So his mind, none that understand. His heart, none that seeks after God. I like this because it is our heart. It is there that we find this idea of seeking after God. Um, And that makes pretty much common sense, right? If I don't understand God and his character and sin, then I don't seek after him. And in fact, we don't just not seek after God. What do we seek after in our heart? Or think, think our seat of emotion. What do our emotions and our, the seat of our emotion chase after or, or pursue and seek after? Okay, sin. What feels good? Yep, absolutely. What's that? Pride. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to say, oh, that's all sin. But I think it magnifies in different ways. Sometimes it's inward. Sometimes it's outward. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's lust. However it is, it's instead of seeking after God, I actually, with my emotions, seek after self. And not just self, whatever pleases self. Right? And in the moment, too, that's a great point. Sometimes it's just purely in the moment. Even in my conscience, I know that was wrong. But then we'll say things like, but if it feels so good, how can it be so wrong? which that's the worst thing that anyone can ever tell somebody. If it feels really, really good apart from Christ, then it is sin. Enjoyment is only meant to be in Christ, not outside of him. So our mind, none that understands. Paul says our heart, because there's none that seeks after God. And finally, our will, our will, none that does good. Now, is that a true statement? There is none in humanity apart from Christ that does good? Okay, it has to be a true statement. Why? Okay. Yes. Right. 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 So things like, think like Red Cross, right? Goes in. Some of those people are Christian, by the way, and they're doing it because they're Christians, but they go into an area ravaged by a hurricane and they're feeding people and clothing people and giving medicine to people and they're, they're just trying to be what people need them to be, providing shelter and homes. They're doing all that. We would call that good. And it's okay, by the way, to say that's good. By the way, you don't have to like harp on people when they're doing good. Encourage them in doing good. But from God's point of view, what does he mean by good? Go ahead, Mary. Okay. Our good isn't perfection. Okay. It's not holy. Okay. It's not, it's not good to his glory. Okay. How about this? We sometimes don't do good things so that he's glorified. We do good things that what? We are glorified. What did Jesus say? when the one came up and said that he was good. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good. What was the point there? Or do you really believe I'm God? Do you really believe I'm the Messiah? Because if you really believe that, then, then that's why you're calling me good. But are you just saying that because you're trying to flatter me, trying to you know, make me think something about this so I'll show you favor? So again, this idea of doing good, it's only in Christ that we can do good for him, serve him, honor him. It uh, doesn't mean we don't do good deeds among mankind, But in God's perspective, in God's view, there's a whole different level of good as we define it. Um, He goes on to say here, because no man seeks after God, 
What is the logical conclusion? It is God that must seek after him. Okay, this is huge. This is paramount. If God, or if we do not seek after him in our hearts, in our mind, and in our will, okay, if in every, le- every avenue, everything that makes us a human being is completely bent against him, and I don't seek after him, the only way that I'm going to be saved is if he then seeks after me. And this is huge because it changes our whole, whole view of salvation. It changes our whole view of life, whole view of our value and our worth before God. Uh, Genesis 3, 8 through 10. We're not going to go there for time's sake, but we're going to find out that there it talks about the idea of God promising a Messiah who would come and who would be providing a way. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. If someone wants to turn there, we will read that one just quickly. So Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Again, we must understand that it is God that pursues us, God that seeks after us. Luke 19.10, if someone wants to read that for me. Okay, Jill. Okay, I love that because why did he come? He came for one purpose. We think the, the miracles, okay? And it's great that he did miracles. We can praise God for the miracles that he did. It's great that he did all the things he did outside of that. But he came for one purpose. What was that one purpose? It's to seek and to save. He didn't just come to seek and share a message. He came to seek them, and then he accomplished that seeking with saving them. It's completion. It's, it is finished through the cross. And so we must understand that it is not us that seeks after God. Now, in our day and age, we say things like, people say things like, I'm just seeking after truth. I think that's a true statement. I think people really are seeking after something that's true. Um, people seek after purpose. They want to know what this life is all about. They don't may not know that what they're seeking after, or what, rather what they need, is really God, or really that relationship. They're not seeking after God, per se, because in our natural state, Paul says we don't. They're seeking after something, but in their own understanding, they can't put their finger on it. And so it's so important that God seeks after us. Uh, in this section of verses, Paul quotes, and I'm not going to go through all the parallels. You know, in this passage, he quotes this verse, but I'll give you the verses he quotes. You can read them in their context to see how it ties in with chapter 3 and this section that, we just de- that we're dealing with. Uh, in this ver- section of verses, Paul quotes from various Old Testament references. We gave you Psalm 14. He also quotes from Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, 7, Psalm 36, 1, and also Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Now, he references others, but those are the main ones that he would be referencing. The reason I point that out to you is because Paul is tying it together. He's saying this isn't anything new. This, the human problem we're dealing with is not a new problem. Then you get to verse 20. Verse 20. Uh, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The word therefore in verse 20 carries the idea of because and gives us the main key reason the whole world is guilty. That's a typo. It should say guilty, not guilt. Uh, Because they cannot keep the law of God. The mouth of the guilty will be stopped and there is no defense uh, one can give on the day of judgment. Nothing we say will convince God to overlook his justice and holiness. Only the shed blood of Christ will speak for our defense. He says there, no one will be justified in his sight by following the law. Why? Because we can't do it. We can't do it perfectly. We can't do it completely. So since we can't do it completely and perfectly, we cannot be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. Now again, isn't it interesting that 
when you read this here in verses 19 and 20, we said earlier in chapter 2, there's two groups of people, those with the law and those without the law. And we said those with the law will be judged by the law, and those without the law will be judged by what? The law. They don't know it, but they're going to be judged by the law. And ultimately, they know they've done wrong because their conscience has convicted them or spoken against them. So here Paul reminds us in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. So who's technically under the law? Everyone apart from those in Christ at this point, right? So he's saying that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Man, we like to try to talk our way out of things, don't we? Remember, how, how did he start the chapter? How did he start chapter 3? By refuting what? Questions. Questions people might ask. Things that might justify our sin. Think about Jesus. How many times was he posed a question? How many times was he posed the question just to try to get him trapped in something or try to justify something? Uh, the Good Samaritan, how did that all start? With the question, who is my neighbor? Why'd the guy ask the question? Why'd the guy ask the question? What was he hoping Jesus would say? Okay, the Jews specifically, right? You tell me the Jews are my neighbor, I'm okay with that. You tell me the Samaritans are my neighbor, I have a problem with that. And so Jesus then tells a parable that has the Samaritan as the hero, pointing out there is no respecter of persons among God. And so here when you see this constantly among human nature, become human, humanity is filled with this. We question God at every turn to try to justify our sin. Now, it doesn't mean we don't ask questions. It doesn't mean we go deeper. But if the point of the question is merely to justify a sin, not a, not a preference issue, not, I'm talking about sin, black and white sin. If that's our point, is to try to get out of it, then we're not really going to fall under his authority. We're trying to defend. We're trying to justify. And he says, outside of Christ, if you stand before God, which, by the way, that also tells me what? That everyone will be in the sight of God. Every single human being will be before God for judgment. And if you are outside of Christ and you try to talk your way out of it, your mouth will be stopped. You know what that means? You won't be able to speak. So what is it about God when we stand before him that will keep us from even being able to utter a word? Like think of the magnitude that is God that an unbeliever before him will not be able to speak. Now, I don't think it's God actually silences the mouth, meaning removes the ability to speak. I honestly believe, and it's just my opinion, you can disagree, uh, but I honestly believe that when we're before God and we see him in his, his majesty, I think even the unbeliever will be stopped. His mouth will be silenced. Yeah. Yeah. And those are, right. And those are men that actually honored God, that loved God, and they were silenced before him. Now imagine an unbeliever confronted with the full weight of their sin and the guilt of their sin and the weight of their sin. What do you, how do you say anything? You just stand there silent. I believe as believers, just so you know, I mean, I believe as believers, I believe we're going to fall before God silent. I mean, I know there's that song, By Mercy Me, you know, will I dance, will I do all these things? That's great to think about. I think when I see God, I will be as John, as Isaiah, as so many others, I will just be fallen before him in the weight of his majesty. And again, I think sometimes when we think, well, I'm going to go before God, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, we are forgetting the God that we are coming before. And we think it's about it's not about you when you go before God. It's about him. And that's why I love that when we do see examples of people going before God, there's instantly an awareness of their sin, and there's an awareness of their possibility for repentance. 
Because God offers repentance to us, to those that were before him, the prophets and such. And so when you go before God as a believer, I believe we'll fall and we'll understand the fullness of what Christ provided to us in that moment. And of course, the Bible says we will see him and we'll be like him. So it's an amazing thought to dwell on that. Um, any questions from this section? Uh, we're going to stop here. We'll pick up next week the means of salvation. But any questions on this section? Questions, comments, or thoughts? So next week, we get into the good stuff, meaning the feel-good, happy stuff, okay? We'll be liking next week a little more. So because you read things like your mouth is an open sepulcher, and I mean, that's, let that sink in for a second, right? There's poison in your lips. Um, but I think that's not really hard for us to imagine, is it? You ever talk to somebody that you swear they had poison in their lips? Or be that person, Yeah. And you realize you walk away and you actually just feel wounded from them. Uh, man, that's, and again, the Bible's clear on this. Like when we don't know Christ, the stuff we say, man, it, when we know Christ, the stuff we say is crazy. But to imagine what, what he's referring to there and the violence, the feet are swift to shed blood. We see that in our world today. Um, you know, when you see wars or things like this, or just people killing people over stupid things. I remember a few years ago, was it a Black Friday thing where someone killed somebody over an Xbox? I mean, just, this is dumb. But this is how we are without Christ. This is the way our minds and our, our, our thinking, our hearts work. And so praise God we're saved from all that, though. Amen. All right, so it is 7.05. We are ending a little earlier, obviously, because they're going to be down there for a little bit yet. So you guys are welcome to hang out down here. I would ask that if they're in there having their, uh, doing their stuff, please don't go down there and look in the windows. Um, I know that's really cute to watch them. It's hugely distracting to the children and the leaders. And so if you would do us the favor of maybe just hanging out down here uh, in some way, shape, or form until they are done and dismissed um, or until 7.30, uh, I would greatly appreciate that. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And we'll ask God to bless the remainder of our night and our week to come. Father, we thank you for your grace and your presence. We thank you, Lord, that while we in our natural state are so distant from you, we have no desire to come before you. We go the other way. We run from you. Uh, we prefer darkness over light. We don't want your gospel because it, it opens up our hearts and minds to the reality of sin. But I'm so thankful that when we are in our natural state enemies of you, and we shook our fist at you in, in, in rebellion and anger that you pursued us, that you sought after us. And Lord, the beauty of that is you're the hero of the story. You're the hero that comes and rescues the perishing. And so I pray, Lord, that we would remember that and that we would know that to be true and that when we uh, find you as a Savior and we come before you and receive you as our Savior, that we don't glory in ourselves, we glory in you. And as we live this life, we live our life to your glory and to your praise. And so, Father, for the many ways that we could praise you, we lift you up tonight. Thank you for your goodness in our lives and for being a God that we can trust. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would continually be students of your word, that we would be open to wisdom and guidance. And Lord, when your word leads us in a way that is different from what we believe, I pray that you'd help us to see that. And Lord, I also pray that when we are growing in you and, and understanding your word in a, in a different way and just seeing the way your word is coming alive, Lord, that when we encounter other even believers that are not there yet, uh, that are still maybe struggling with some things, uh, I pray, Lord, that we would not be arrogant or boastful in our knowledge but that we would graciously and humbly come before them and help them to understand the word of God, not in a bullying type way, 
but in a way that is compassionate, speaking the truth in love. Father, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your patience with us because no, no matter where we are, Lord, in this walk, uh, the person in this room that has studied your word for years and years and years and years, uh, the person that has memorized your word cover to cover, uh, Lord, we've never reached a point of arrival. And so I pray that we would always be humble to know that we can always learn more and grow more and see you come to know, or us come to know you more than we do now. May we walk in you this week and see you use us to make disciples and share your gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.